This is the hour of doom and bloom. <laughs> That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, a paragon of power in a political world. I'm world-renowned Austrian shampoo artist Otto von Schwanz, stepping in for Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones of the award-winning survival website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Amy Alton. I am actually Amy Alton, not stepping in for Amy Alton, also known <laughs> as Nurse Amy. And I'm a certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Not to mention the hostess with the mostest, so hot that she lit the Olympic flame just by winking at it. <laughs> <laughs> On this show, you'll get the conventional wisdom and the unconventional wisdom, whatever it takes for your family to get medically prepared for the uncertain future. But before we start, listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast and videocast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Yeah, what's the matter with you listening to us? (laughs) (laughs) But what happens in a disaster when you find out the ambulance is heading for the other side of town? If the you-know-what hits the fan and they can't get to you, someone in the family better be ready to take over. And we volunteered you to be the one. Surprise! Surprise! (laughs) Before we get started, I just want to mention that we've completed writing the new fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook. Greatly expanded and revised, so much so that the book itself is going to be physically larger, contain many new topics and more in-depth information on the old ones. I don't want to say you need a wheelbarrow, but... (laughs) it's gonna be a big book (laughs) it's been five years honestly since the third edition came out so i think it was time to update and by the way pre-orders are now available at store.doomandbloom.net and soon you'll be able to buy the book on amazon yes more info on that real soon yeah last week we said it was a cruel cruel summer like the 80s song goes and if you live on the coast or considering a trip to the beach here's your pool noodle thank you very much i'll be safe now there you go You have more than sunburn to worry about if you're going to be out during the dog days of summer in the water. There's all sorts of critters in the sea that can cause trouble even close to shore. And I'm not talking about sharks. It's shark week on that geo and some of you are probably all sharked out. I'm talking about other sea creatures that don't bite you but sting you. How about jellyfish? Jellyfish are found all over the world from surface waters to the deep blue sea. And although sharks get all the publicity, jellyfish cause 150 million injuries a year throughout the world. Jellies have a fascinating life cycle that honestly, they remind me of an alien life form. They spend part of their life on the seabed, sort of stuck to to the floor of the sea. Like coral. That's right. And then they become free swimming once they reach their reproductive stage, which they call the medusa stage, which is sort of interesting too. Jellyfish have tentacles. They have countless stinging cells on these tentacles that are called nematocysts. Injure millions of swimmers every year by injecting them with a type of venom. Species to watch out for include the Portuguese man of war. We have those around here. Mm -hmm. The box jellyfish, the sea nettle, and all sorts of others. Now those Portuguese man of war, those are the blue ones. Yes, very beautiful. Yes, we had to look out for those when we were kids. Step around them. That's right. Which of course, we get stung anyway. But Same thing here. I got stung as a teenager myself. Oh, so for those things Beach. Definitely an issue. The symptoms may present as very minor to sometimes life-threatening. They include local throbbing, burning pain, irritation, muscle spasms, itching, swelling, reddish-brown or purple tracks, 
corresponding to where the tentacles actually touch the skin. No, and some people get you actually get generalized symptoms like nausea and vomiting, general weakness, confusion, altered mental status, all sorts of stuff. In people who get stung, some note the development of blisters and other reactions that can occur up to one to two weeks after the actual event. In severe envenomations, shortness of breath, rapid pulse, other heart and lung problems may manifest dependent on the dose of the venom that's actually injected into the body. It should be noted that tentacles of dead jellyfish on the shores may still impart venom if stepped on or touched. I got it just by walking on the beach. Dead jellyfish dead. just laying they around. They were dead. And that's you the too? Whole, yeah, that's yeah. what we were stepping around were the dead jellyfish because we figured out after a few times that they could still get you. Now, once you've realized you've been stung, remove any visible stingers with tweezers or even a credit card, anything that will scrape it off, but avoid actually rubbing the area. Once removed, skin irritations can be treated with oral antihistamines like Benadryl, diphenhydramine, or calamine lotion, as well as topical steroids like hydrocortisone, 1% cream, or ointment. Uh, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, these may be required if you have pain. And if the injury is near the eye, you really have to flush that area out very, very thoroughly. Massively. That's right. Burning sensations can be relieved by a rinse using seawater, not fresh water. Burning sensations can be relieved with a rinse using sea, not fresh water, which actually activates the venom nematocyst. And heating the seawater is thought to be more effective in soothing the pain. Different sources advocate vinegar, very, very useful for this in most cases, witch hazel, rubbing alcohol, baking soda paste, and other substances as treatment. Now these, like the meat tenderizer. Like Adolph's meat tenderizer might actually help too. I've heard a lot of people say that. I haven't seen reports on it in terms of hard scientific data, but yeah. it might work. Uh, so these may all inactivate the nematocysts, but they vary in their effectiveness depending on the individual victim and the species of jellyfish involved. The medic, you should determine the right treatment for the specific jellies that are in your area before a disaster occurs so you already know the best strategy. Expected discomfort and other symptoms of a jellyfish sting to last from a few days to a few weeks. Now, how about urine? Some people say urinate on the stings to make them feel better. Well, urine does have salt, so if it's very concentrated, it might actually work. But if you think the light yellow urine that well-hydrated people pee will work, well, it is so much like fresh water, it helps like an iceberg help the Titanic. <laughs> well, that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> to prevent jellyfish stings, avoid swimming on the occasions where they swarm. That's called a bloom, a jellyfish bloom. This is often Wait, that would also be called a doom, <laughs> doom and bloom. A doom and bloom. You get that's the doom right. because of that bloom. That's right. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> Very good. She's so, Had to do that. <laughs> she's so clever. This is often seasonal. It may be wise to entirely avoid the beach altogether during these times. Of course, if you have to enter the water, do so with protective clothing. Wear shoes if you're walking on the beach. And what about other critters? There are other critters like stingrays that can cause stings. Another creature responsible for more injuries than sharks is actually a relative, and that's the stingray. They're flat, roundish, and seem to fly in the water like little angels with fins that look like wings. They're also most often seen in warmer climates like we have down here. The problem with stingrays isn't their bite, it comes from the other end. A stingray's tail contains one or two or more barbed spines, each containing venom, which can be very painful when it's injected into an unwary victim. This usually occurs by accidentally stepping on it, so expect most injuries to be in the feet, ankle, or lower legs. Wounds appear as punctures or small lacerations. The venom can be lethal if injected into the chest or abdomen. 
The list of symptoms a victim experiences is extensive. Essentially, it's a world of hurt. It includes extreme pain, bleeding, swelling, dizziness, anxiety, sweating, nausea and vomiting, muscle cramps, skin discoloration, wow, the whole shebang. In the worst cases, the victim complains of irregular heartbeat, shortness of breath, muscle paralysis, fainting, they could even have seizures. The famous crocodile hunter Steve Irwin somehow got a spine to the heart while he was diving, and he was dead within minutes. Treating a stingray barb wound would involve stopping the bleeding with pressure, flushing the wound and removing barbs and debris, tweezers will help, soaking the area in hot, not scalding water, fresh water is okay in this case, until pain improves, heat can act inactivate the venom, that's a good thing, scrubbing the wound with soap and fresh water to prevent infection, and avoiding wound closure unless absolutely necessary. And lots of bacteria can live in these spines and these barbs, so they can get you very sick if you lock them in under stitches. Antibiotics like doxycycline, 100 milligrams orally twice a day for seven days, that might be helpful to prevent infection. Should be noted that treatment strategies for stingrays will also work on injuries caused by spined catfish, scorpionfish, lionfish, and various other toxic sea creatures. Hey, even if your summer plans don't involve a beach, they could involve a local lake or river. In warm weather, as humans can't survive underwater for very long, significant risks exist for those people who aren't careful. I'm talking about drowning. Drowning is the most harrowing and heartbreaking water-related injury, and it's the third leading cause of death from unintentional trauma behind motor vehicle accidents and falls. About 90% of drownings take place in freshwater venues, not seawater, like rivers, lakes, and swimming pools. So how does a person drown? The primary urge to breathe is triggered by rising carbon dioxide levels in the blood. The human body is very good at detecting small changes in CO2 and controls breathing to facilitate what we call gas exchange. That's oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. Drowning begins at the point where a person is unable to keep their head and nose and mouth above water. The actual inhalation of water into the lungs happens later on. Once a person is unable to keep their mouth above water, a cascade of events takes place that leads to a fatality. You may be surprised to know that the symptoms considered to be classic for drowning, like flailing around, screaming, splashing around, often aren't apparent. Involuntary movements of arms and legs may occur underwater, and no splash may be noted. Lack of air prevents screaming for help loud enough to be heard. From a distance, honestly, it may not be obvious even to people looking directly at the victim that they're in trouble. It's important, therefore, to look for the following behaviors seen in near-drowning cases. Mouth and nose below the level of the water. Eyes unfocused or wide with fear. Head tilted back, mouth open, and obviously gasping for air. Attempting to swim to shore without making any progress. And, of course, uncontrollable movement of the extremities. Like I said, this may be underwater. You might not see some of these things. There are thought to be four stages of drowning. One, the victim holds their breath voluntarily underwater as long as possible. This lasts only until carbon dioxide level in the body reaches too high. Two, water enters the airways as the urge to breathe becomes impossible to suppress. Although the trachea goes into spasm for vent aspirating more water, panic ensues. This consumes more oxygen and speeds the loss of consciousness. Three, once unconscious, the trachea starts to open and allows free movement of water right into the lungs. Fluid in the lungs prevents oxygenation, leading to cardiac arrest and deterioration of brain cells. Four, injury to the brain becomes irreversible after several minutes without oxygen. Near-drowning survivals are usually rescued within two minutes, whereas fatalities are found after maybe 10 minutes or more. The younger the person, the better their chances. 
In one instance, a child submerged in water just above freezing for 66 minutes survived without apparent neurologic damage. Crazy. It's thought that hypothermia in these cases stopped the or slowed the metabolism, which allowed for a longer period of time before the development of brain damage. In survival settings, you may find yourself having to cross bodies of water. Now, there's some things that you need to do to prevent drownings. In normal times, take swimming lessons. If you don't know how to swim, don't go into swimming depth water if you don't know how to swim. I don't know how else to say that. Swimming lessons are provided by YMCA's, many municipalities throughout the country. The best time to teach children to swim is between, believe it or not, the ages of one and four. CPR classes are also important. You can avoid tragedies, by the way, by constructing pool fences four feet high with a safety latch. Strictly supervise who goes into the water. Whatever people or the infirmer involved, strict attention must be given by a responsible, sober adult. For preschool children, the adult should always be close enough to touch the child and not be involved in any other activity. Adults use the buddy system. Everyone should always swim with another person or persons. On the beach, beware of rip currents, high waves, discolored water, debris, channels of water moving away from shore. These are signs of dangerous conditions. If you're caught in a rip current, don't try to swim straight to the shore. Swim parallel until free, then diagonally back towards the beach. Foam or inflatable items, they don't really take the place of life jackets on boats. Enforce the use of the right equipment, even with adults. Of course, be aware of the weather. Thunderstorms often whip up the water with strong winds, and that increases the risk of drowning. You got to be physically fit. Swimming involves insertion, so make sure you're up to the challenge. Even if you're a good swimmer in high school, you may not be a good swimmer now, old timers, so beware of the exertion. Be ready. Be physically fit. Don't drink alcohol. Any water activity becomes more dangerous both to you and children you supervise if you're drinking. In the wilderness, be wary of river crossings. Fast-moving water can easily knock you off your feet even if it's just a foot or so deep. At the beach or in the wilderness, you might encounter a distressed person in the water. Your first response? Jump in and help! But remember that the hazards that are causing the problem are probably still there if it's a rip current, for example. Also, the person in question will likely be panicked, flailing around, probably submerge you to get up out of the water into the air. First, you should call for others to help if possible. Your goal is to rescue the person in distress while avoiding injury to yourself and not becoming the next victim. This happens not uncommonly, by the way. I've read more than three or four reports of someone jumping in and drowning themselves trying to save somebody else. What you need to do is remember four words. The four words are reach, throw, row, and go. Reach out to the person with a stick or an oar. Throw the person a rope, a life preserver, or some other floating object to hold on to. Row out to the person if you, if you have a canoe or a boat or some other kind of boat. And go into the water only as a last resort. If there's no other option, go into the water and try to save that person. Once the victim's out of the water, put them flat on their back, check for breathing. If they're unconscious but they're breathing, place in the standard recovery position on their side. We've talked about that before. Cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, that's required if the victim isn't breathing. Unlike the procedure for a typical cardiac arrest, unlike the procedure for a typical cardiac arrest, five initial rescue breaths are recommended and then chest compressions. This is because the basic issue is lack of oxygen here. After the initial breath, cycles of chest compressions and two rescue breaths are performed until help arrives. Some believe in attempting to expel water with Heimlich-like maneuvers. These should be avoided because there is no solid object that's obstructing the airway, and these motions could delay the start of ventilatory actions. 
Also, abdominal thrusts raise the chance of vomiting stomach contents into open airways. That increases the risk of dying. Needless to say, outcomes worsen significantly in an austere environment where emergency services and advanced care is not available. Well, that's all we have for today. We hope you and yours stay healthy. I'm Joe Alton. And I'm Amy Alton. (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.